Hi everybody and welcome back. We have a very interesting episode today, slightly different to our other ones because we're going to be talking quite a lot about music and music management. And we have a very interesting guest. His name is Dikran Atamian, which is a tough name to pronounce. So in his uh, American business, he is called Jack Price. And Jack and I are going to talk about a variety of interesting concepts around the difficulties of being a classical performer in today's day and age or the age of Spotify. What are the steps that you can take to become a well-known and booked musician? And we talk a little bit about his experience winning uh, recitals, for example, in, 19, uh, in 1975, he won the 50th anniversary Naumburg competition at Carnegie Hall. He was 19, one of only two at that time being that young. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this fascinating and sometimes cantankerous talk about the music industry. So why don't we start with a little bit of your background, because it's uh, quite a fascinating one. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we'd uh, love to hear a bit about how you started out in music and then your move into managing other artists. Right. Well, one Christmas, I guess I was about nine, my mother heard Liberace on the TV or something. And she didn't know, you know, these Armenian parents, they're like, you know, they're, they're into money, they're into the, you know, substantial things in life. Art, art is not exactly the Armenian way, you know. So anyway, they were typical Armenians. Um, actually, they were both models uh, <clears throat> in their former, you know, state. <laughs> and so she wanted me to play the piano because he, my father had me doing judo and baseball and all that. So she bought a Baldwin like fun machine kind of thing, a, a chord organ, a very small keyboard. So I guess I started banging on it and they said, Oh yeah, I think he has talent. And so, <laughs> so they took me to some local guy in Tempe, Arizona, where we were living in Scottsdale. And he said, Oh, your, your son is, you know, very precocious. And I, I, I wonder to this day, what, what's the basis for that? Because I couldn't read music at that point. Yeah. You know, it sounds pretty stupid. So anyway, one thing led to another. And two years later, I made my debut with the Phoenix Symphony. So it's fast. It was fast. And I would say, yeah, I was a prodigy, but much more prodigious in the sense of interpretation and feeling the music very prodigious. Physically, it took me a while till I was about, 16 or 17 to really come into my own mechanically or technically, you might call it. I don't really call it that, but I, I had a physical affinity to the keyboard, but it had to be brought out. You know, it was much more of a feeling thing when I was young. Uh, not to say that I couldn't play the notes. I'm just saying that it developed much later. And um, so that's how I started. And then I started touring pretty much at 11, you know, in the States. I would just write to universities and say, hey, I'm a pianist. Can I come and play for nothing? You know, that kind of thing. That's how I built my brand. You talk about branding. I built my brand differently than most people in classical music. I just wrote in my teens to universities and colleges and say, look, 
I want to play this program. And it was a pretty demanding program. And they'd invite me. They sometimes paid my airfare. Sometimes they would give me a little fee. Sometimes they'd put me in a hotel. And that's how, when I won the Naumburg at 19, the name Atamian or Atamian was already branded. So that's what you need to do, not win a contest. You got to brand the name before you win the contest, in my opinion. So, so that's, so, that's kind so of you, different. So you were basically an overnight success in 10 years. Yeah, I mean, you might say that because <laughs> uh, Associated Press carried a story to all the dailies in the world, Australia, and people would call me say, hey, we just saw your picture in the, you know, in the um, uh, Saturday evening, blah, 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 in England or wherever. And I'd say, wow, that's fast because I just won this thing like three days ago. So apparently UPI did me a lot of good and somehow the name Atamian stuck, but not as much as when I did the Rite of Spring. That's what really nailed it. So my yeah. brand came, I was the crazy Armenian Stravinsky guy at that point. Yeah. So again, I, I, I joked about being an overnight success in 10 years. I mean, you'd been building. Yeah, that's not build, true. Building, that's not, yeah. Yeah, of course. No, well, I mean, by yeah. building, building up to it over, over quite a few years. So you didn't just erupt from nowhere. You'd been building up your brand, no, building no. up your reputation. And yeah. that just seemed that was just sort of the, the pinnacle at, at, at that point. Now, yeah. from, from that position, so having won that competition, which obviously was very good PR and hopefully uh, a, a bit of cash as well, probably not a oh, huge yeah. amount. But, not in um, those days, not in 75, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was something like 10,000, maybe 8,500. I can't even remember, to be honest. Yeah. But how did you? How did your trajectory take off from there? Did you manage yourself? Did your parents no. manage you? How 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 did this work? Oh no! I immediately signed with the architect of Columbia Artists Management, William Judd. He and Arthur Judson invented Cami or Columbia Artists. You must have heard of Columbia Artists. Yeah. They went bankrupt three years ago, so they're no longer yeah. during COVID, unfortunately. Hmm. But I was with. Not first with Cami, I was with the Judd Concert Bureau, which was Bill Judd got sick and tired of Cami, even though he invented it and he left and took Andre Watts and Earl Wilde and Rudolf Serkin, some very big names, Big Bird from Sesame Street and, um, and Michael Rabin. And then I arrived in 75, actually after Rabin died, um, so, you know, it was uh, a critical time. Hurok was folding because they had a fire or something. And then they turned into ICM and uh, Shaw Concerts, which I later signed with both of them. So I went with the big boys, but I was not satisfied. And that's why we're having this conversation. So I invented my own thing, kind of, and joined up with the North American Artists Foundation, hence Price Attractions which is the management arm of the North American Artists Foundation. Now, I've I found that uh, my father is, a, is an author and my grandfather is a very famous Afrikaans author. So any Afrikaans person listening will, will, know, my, will know my grandfather. Mm -hmm. um, but when it came to my father writing books, he's a fantastic writer. But mm -hmm. uh, publishing agencies tend to have favorites and they're also quite 
poor at marketing sometimes. They, right. they, they sometimes hit it lucky with a hit or with a, a book that, 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 uh, that does well. And self-promotion obviously is, is a key part. And sometimes, and to your point, promoting yourself is a, is a better route to go or to go with somebody who's got a real passion in that particular area. How, yeah. have, how have you used your experience in your own performing career and in your own experience with labels and publishers to help your business? Well, I try to tell my artists that the greatest help they can do for themselves is to create career milestones. That's what I learned. In other words, what's going to separate you from the pack, from the rest of the boys, you know, or girls? Um, the point is there are too many artists and there have always been too many artists, but now we have millions, you know, just millions. I heard a weird fact the other day that there were 24 million pianists in China alone. Now, I don't know if that's true. And they're all trying to be Lang Lang, you know, so, you know, the brand. Yeah. And so, uh, hey, go for it. You know, I don't know if that's true, but there are a, a lot of artists. I mean, just a plethora. And these buyers, they have their choice and the buyers don't really, you know, it's not like they, they know the difference between Yafim Bronfman and, uh, you know, uh, Yuja Wong, they don't know the difference between these names. They just yeah. know what sells. So they're going to engage a name they know. That's the key thing I tell the artists. Your brand is not your tone. Your brand is not what you look like. Your brand is not your repertoire. Your brand is your name. If your name is John Smith, you're stuck with that unless you want to change it. You know, for me, Atomian seemed to be a good name and it. It just seemed... I think it was a lucky stroke. I didn't have a huge career because I didn't have any money, but I made a living, which is something to say in this business. Yeah. You know, I supported my family and whatnot, but uh, it was a significant career. And that's what I try to get artists to realize they're the days of Van Cliburn and all this stuff th that's gone. Even Yo-Yo Ma is not Van Cliburn. That was a, that was a sensation that, like you say, it was a stroke of, luck i mean he kissed khrushchev on the lips and the rest is history right you know yeah i mean you you it's just unbelievable i mean won the tchaikovsky and then etc 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 but it wasn't the prize it was the political climate at the time that propelled van into that stratosphere of the pantheon of piano you know no to the point where there was no other pianist but van Cliburn. yeah know? At one point. Well, well you, ma you made the point of uh, your folks listening to Liberace. I, I literally was yeah. going to joke, joke about saying one of my favorite pianists, uh, you know, is, uh, is Liberace. Uh, well, so you, you brought, you, just to, just to uh, play with you. But I th mine I think... isn't. I don't like Liberace, and I met him several times, and I don't <laughs> like him as a person, although he's not with us any longer. So, yeah. no, uh, there are other people I would really like. Van Cliburn was a great guy. For yeah. example, wonderful, but, humble. But 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 let's but let's look at brands and and your point about I, I don't doubt that there are twenty four million pianists potential pianists in China because there's tremendous talent there's uh, uh, a great push by government to push culture and yeah. education. Sure, there is. But yeah. but if we look at what separates 
performers from everyone else. If we look at uh, the likes of Liszt, we look at Rubenstein, we look yeah. at Yasha Heifetz, they were yeah. very good, so they had that, but they had a flair. They had something a little bit extra. If you look at Liszt, it was his clothing, oh, it was his wild yeah, temperament, I mean, it was, it was yeah. the way that he electrified audiences. He played, I'm sure, a lot of wrong notes, but he played it very loudly and extravagantly and possibly to audiences who weren't terribly but, sophisticated. But he had, he had a brand, he had something that differentiated him versus tone. Yeah, right. Well. What Liszt also had was humility. He helped, he brought back the Hammerklavier. He promoted other composers like Chopin. I mean, he was so humble and they make him look like, you know, this ladies man and everything. He wasn't like that at all. I mean, he had basically two women in his life. If you read the Walker trilogy of books, you know, that Canadian guy that wrote the Liszt books, uh, very interesting. I couldn't put it down, uh, but um, Liszt had, a flair. List was phenomenal, but he also was striking looking, you know, mm. he had that. Um, and the myths began about him with the women and he used to, they said that he would play something really hard and stop in the middle of it and go rescue a woman in the audience that fainted. Now that woman could have been paid to faint. I don't know. But anyway, that's a story. These legends just creep up. I've got, I'm not known at all. And I mean, you know, like I said, I had a significant career. There, there are all kinds of rumors about me all over the internet that I grease the keys with shoe polish. It's nonsense. <laughs> you know, someone said that in um, uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, I, I did list actually number two concerto. And they said that I greased it with shoe polish. It's not true. I mean, you know, I'm, yeah, I, I don't mean, need I don't need to lie about it. There's no shoe polish in the piano, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not something I would use to disparage somebody, to be honest, with shoe, shoe polish. But let's let's talk about uh, building artists in the age of, or music management in the age of Spotify. Now, I've one of the problems I've had with um, music and music labels is obviously you have one or two big stars who make absolute horrific yeah. amounts of amount of money and then you've got actual really good artists in penury but i think yeah. this is something that has happened throughout history most musicians didn't expect to be multimillionaires they loved their craft they loved playing the piano the banjo whatever it was yeah. and they'd go and play at their local bar they would like bach write music for church every week be performing every week and make make a living i think right. a lot of people have are thinking that the music industry is like becoming president you know you can make you can get to the top and you can make a fortune and uh, it, it doesn't seem to work like that anymore and especially with uh, Spotify when you're getting a, a tiny you know sliver of uh, a, a cent every time somebody plays your track how does one make money as a as an artist now how are you well, saying to your the folks that you are managing to have a, a livable career? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll attack that question in the recording industry. You're not gonna make money if you're a development artist, which is below the Yo-Yo Ma type cachet. Anything below Van Cliver and all that stuff is development, not in talent, but in name, in brand. So if the brand has to be developed, 
you're not going to make any money in records. I don't care if you record for Deutsche Grammophone. The only way you're going to make money is selling those recordings at your concerts. And that's not easy because there are not that many opportunities to play these days. You have to really dig for concerts for artists. It's uh, post COVID and the business itself and post 2008 when we had that horrible financial crisis, that really did something to especially conductors. I mean, they were losing their jobs. They were cutting their salaries. Uh, I used to have a roster of only 55 conductors. I never had any soloists. Don't ask me why. It just worked out that way. I had to go totally different in 2010 and accept all kinds of soloists, singers, and everything because the conductors just didn't have it. They didn't have the money. And my model is different, or our model. Unlike Cami, they have to make money. We're a nonprofit, and so we just charge for the work, and that's it. And to get the work done, they have to pay for it. But it's not—it's nominal compared to the money we're talking about. You know, with big names like Joshua Bell and Yujo Wang, they have millions behind them, and nobody. I mean, I know some of the stories. I know where the bodies are buried, but there's no need to go into that. The point is they have it and you don't, you see. So if you don't have those millions, you're extremely limited with branding yourself and getting yourself out there. And therefore, you're going to be limited in concert engagements and recordings and everything. But forget the recording industry and Spotify. You're not going to make money that way. There's no way. They The internet just stole that. I mean, I can give you a very good example. Okay, so there's a recording of my Brahms first piano concerto. And on, you know, it's only it's only a digital download. So listen to this, you can go to Amazon, and they will rip the sound from that digital download and make you a CD for $17. Complete with artwork. I don't have a CD. There was no CD of that recording. And I've never seen a cent it's all piracy. I mean, they just rip the artists off. It's that simple. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tough, tough industry to go in. And, and, and I think you really need a passion now if you're going to be a classical pianist. Uh, oh, yeah. In, you in, have to. Like if I was to say, I mean, if I had to do it now, I would not do it. I don't care how much talent I have or whatever. I would never record the Rite of Spring. I would never record the Beethoven Sonatas. I would never do anything. I would go into something like real estate. <laughs> well, I, it's too well, I, it's too hard. But 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 the fact is, artists today are more. They're so passionate about their work; they will not stop. I mean, and I admire that. I admire that that they want to play. Okay, play. I yeah. chose to retire seventeen years ago. This is my choice. It's not a referendum on their playing. It's it's just my choice. You know, yeah. and I had so, a lot of reasons. Well, I uh, I was accepted for opera school, and at the really? same time, yeah, and at the same time, I had the offer of working at one of my dream companies as a marketing person, mm -hmm. and I weighed up eating, having a family, uh, or being on the road and having a concert uh, during Easter and Christmas, and it mm -hmm. was quite an easy decision because financially and secondly i just wasn't in that 0.1 percent of talent i knew 
internally that I wasn't the best in the world and I would never, unless I tricked my way to the top, get there. So I gave up real early <laughs> on my career. I sing in the choir and I've done all sorts of all sorts of interesting things. But I think those who have the passion and continue with it deserve to be supported somehow, especially if they have talent. So it's, it's yeah. great. Yeah. Seeing they are the kind very of adamant about, yeah, they're very adamant about their talent. I mean, People, the conversations that I have with artists are quite incredible. They really believe in themselves and they really want it. So, hey, as long as they're credentialed, they deserve the marketing that we offer. You know, that's what so, I say. There's so no favoritism. So let's talk about the services that you offer. How do you take somebody who's got passion and talent and make them, and make them succeed in, in the current market? There's only one way. It's a, if you don't have five million to ten million dollars to blitz the industry with, a, you know, buying all the orchestras and and then hoping that the reviews are great and being invited back for real fees. If you can't do that, you got to do it the poor man's way, which is precept upon precept, one phone call at a time. That's what we do. We call people. We call decision makers. We call people that actually book talent. The buyers, we call them. And they are simply the music directors and the artistic administrators. No one else buys talent. The executive director does not get involved with um, programming with their musical map. We're going to do Brahms second this year. And who? what big name can we get to do that? That's how it works. Okay, so these guys have a musical map. We want to do this concerto. What big name can we get? If we can't get a big name, let's get a friend someone that we've already worked with that I know can play the Brahms. The third category, which most people fall into, are contest winners and development artists. And unfortunately, that's where the calling has to come in. you got to call and call and brand that name. you got to pronounce the name perfectly on the phone, and you've got to send the material during the call, the sizzle. They click on the sizzle. They get an image. They get all their deliverables. They get their Spotify, their iTunes, their upcoming engagements, their past engagements, their critical acclaim, their bio, short bio, long bio, whatever they want, a YouTube videos or a YouTube channel and unlimited MP3s. We offer this to all of the artists. They have a real website within our website. So when they see that and you're talking about them, it's like a one-two punch. They get an audio experience on the artist, meaning your voice talking about them, and they get a visual looking at their stuff. That's the only way to do it. You've got to brand them. And it takes about 25 calls, probably, to the Boulder Philharmonic to get them to even remember the name. So basically, these artists have to be prepackaged in order to sell them. So you can't just be a great pianist and call up the uh, uh, no. uh, the Philharmonia and say, hi, I'd like to play X, Y, Z. You've got to they have, don't care. You've got to have, you've got to have the whole package. Ready. Yeah, they don't care. They don't care how great any, first of all, they only care about the name. Do I know this name? The answer is either yes or no. If it's yes, you've got a chance at an engagement. That doesn't mean a definite, definite one. You could be put on a what I call a consideration list, a short or a long list. Short being eminent, long could take five to 10 years, you know, on a conductor's list. Because 
he has everybody to, he owes favors to all these people, you know, all these people he promised engagements to. And so you got to wait in line for an engagement. But, but the, yeah, go ahead. Is this a problem of there being too many schools promoting too many people Absolutely. to be conductors and artists who shouldn't actually be artists? In the field. Yeah, I was artist in res. I'm so glad you brought that up. The real enemy here is the music school, not to vilify them, but to identify the enemy. And the enemy is the plethora of artists and who produces those. Well, you don't just produce yourself. Even I, who was self-taught, I studied with George Bolet. I studied with Claudio Oral. I studied with John Perry, a number of people, Reginald Stewart from England. I mean, you know, but when I say I was self-taught, I threw most of that away and I, I developed my own thing. And if you have something critical to say, like I do, musically and verbally, then you have your, you can win. If you have nothing to say and all you can do is play the notes, I'm sorry to say everybody can play the notes some way, somehow. It's how you play them, of course. So yeah. it's very difficult to have a career these days, but more and more people want that career and so we developed a program that gives every development artist that is credentialed and is interested in what we do, might benefit from what we do, they get the marketing. I don't play favorites. I don't go around saying, you know, William Capel or Emil Gallels is my favorite pianist because it doesn't matter to the guy that you're selling. They want to know what you think of them. And you might not think they're your favorite, but if they're credentialed, and they can play, they deserve the marketing. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. I know you might think that's not good because the music schools are grinding these people out daily and many of them, I'm not gonna say all of them, sound the same, I have to say. The artistry level today is not, in my opinion, what it used to be. Most people play the same music trained the same way and they play the same way most of them it's hard to find something really truly unique and personal it's hard hmm. so that would be a winner if you could find that and so it's difficult and i'll tell you who i like later but you know the point is this is a difficult treacherous course having a career in classical or I would call it serious music. Even a film composer, serious music. Jazz artist, serious music. Now, if, you, you know, if you're talking about rap or something, I'm sorry, but I don't consider that serious. It's surely entertainment to some crowds, you know. But the point is, serious music is hard to sell. And there are too many people vying for the same piece of tiny slice of cheese You've got millions of people going after the cheese. Now in Hollywood, at least, you know, there's more opportunity, but then again, you've got millions of actors and actresses and so on and so forth. You, you have the same problem in any career, but there are more opportunities in certain careers, you know. So having said that, and I, and I, th I agree with your point about the, 
music schools churning out people and some of them should never have been churned out in the first place. And I'm sure not everyone coming out of Juilliard or places like that should yeah. get a like place, I, even though some of them are really good. And No, it's like I told you, I was at the University of Michigan and I don't mind saying this, they can criticize me all they want. I was there five years and they kept saying, oh yeah, we need to pass this person. I said, no, you need to flunk this person. This person was a was a night guard in a building somewhere and decided they wanted to play Mozart 310, the A minor sonata. Well, okay, this person had no business playing that Mozart sonata. And when she came to her qualifying recital, she completely fell on her rear end and they still passed her to give the recital. You're exactly right. There's so many people in the industry, mediocrity that have made it because they have the money. And they were encouraged at a music school to continue. No, the the criticism should be levied at a very high level early. No, you don't have it. No, you do. like you said, you, you thought you weren't going to be the greatest or whatever. And you decided against it. Okay, there are very few self-effacing people like that. Okay, you exposed your inner thoughts there when you said that. Very few people do that. I'm self-effacing when I play. If anyone has watched or heard me play, my heart's right there in front of you on the stage. It's, it's everything is born. I bear it all. I don't hide. There's no, yeah. But many people hide, you know. They're playing in music, their thoughts. They say things that they think want, people want to hear. They don't say what they really are thinking. Like Anthony Hopkins said in a movie once, people don't tell you what, what they're thinking. They just make sure you don't succeed. <laughs> they don't, yeah. no, he said they don't let you advance, but they're not going to say you're horrible or something. They just, they could be jealous and you could be phenomenal and you still wouldn't advance. There's jealousy. There's all kinds. But yes, the music schools are the culprits, even though I don't want to vilify them because they have to make money also and the recruiting is down of course yeah well i uh, working in the ed education industry myself i work at a vocational school so mm -hmm. i deal with very hands-on you know activities in in right. digital dig digital marketing and i and i think the general education environment has gone from where you are trying to extract the best out of society and the smartest and make them even smarter and add value to humanity to just allowing everyone in. And I think the traditional concept of universities and education has been completely diluted now. So we are not getting oh, it's just... the, the right people. It's, it's mean and nasty. Yes, you won't be able to get into the degree that you want, but not everyone has the right or deserves to get a degree or deserves to get a master's. And it's bad. It's bad for us. And it's a money-making uh, game, it's all I money. think, in the, Every, in the States. Yeah, it's all money. Just follow the money. Every, almost yeah. everything is about the money. Almost. Yeah. Yeah. So if money is the common denominator, you're in trouble. Yeah. So <laughs> you know. let's, let's talk about you're a young artist. You've got talent or you've got self-belief and you want to be the next Van Clyburn. Mm -hmm. What are the steps that you as that artist need to do before they come to you? Well, they have to be packaged, like you said earlier. They can't just be a phenomenal artist. They have to have something to sell. 
Like someone said to me, oh, they all say this. Well, Jack, don't you have your contacts? You know, you've played with Joanne Folletta and Leinsdorf and Lauren Mazel and, and Eduardo Mata and blah, blah, blah. I mean, you should be able to just slip me into a slot. What they don't realize is, yeah, I'm known to many of the buyers. Some are too young now because I'm, you know, I'm 67. So the problem is, do I have a name to sell? They're not going to take Richie Atamian's or Jack Price's word for it. They want to go. I told something to Jerry Schwartz once, and he goes, what's that name? I've played with him many times. He's not going to just take my artist because he's my artist. That's the fallacy. You have your contacts. Just slip, fit me into a slot. Does not work that way. They have to know the name or they have to have the money because then you can build the name with the auspices, with the series, et cetera. It's very complex, actually. Okay. Would, would it make it's, sense? We don't have time to get into the complexities of how a career is made. But basically, follow the money. Yeah. I liked your point about having milestones. I think that's very good for, for any personal development as well, thinking about where you should be at XYZ stage. But yes. I'll just look at my career. I was in South Africa, and I realized that my career ceiling was going to be quite quite low. So I went I moved to Nigeria to go mm-hmm. and start or set up a research company there with, a, with an advertising agency. It was the last thing I wanted to do, but it was the best decision I've ever made. It was a, it was a very awful experience in the beginning. It was so different to what I'd expected. But the friends I'd met, the, the different cultures I got to understand, and it broke me out of a mold of just being South African-centric. Mm-hmm. You, I, I, I saw that you had performed in the USSR when it was the yeah. USSR, you've performed I did. around in the, the world. Soviet Union, yeah. Is it not worth some of these artists who are looking at the US market to perhaps go to smaller countries or countries that will actually be open or receptive to, to American, uh, new American well, artists with talent? Well, yeah, it's biblical, just like <clears throat> no, I mean, no man is a prophet in his own land. So yeah. that's it's taking that scripture and really exaggerating it. In other words, the old saying here in the States, if you're an American artist, go to Europe and make a name and come back and you'll be famous. Well, you know, it's not that simple. And that also involves money. But the point is, sometimes you can't convince people around you because of jealousy and other things that you're good. So you got to go somewhere else where nobody knows you and they have no prejudices against you or your name or the way you look and you play great or whatever and you get great reviews. And then you can come back to your hometown, Phoenix, Arizona, and, you know, shove it up their nose. You know, I guess. Yeah. But I mean, it's not that easy. This is, these are axioms and sayings and rules that have so many facets to them. I mean... When Jesus said that, you know, that's not, it's not that simple. Okay. Yeah. You know, you're, you're not a prophet in your own land. Well, yeah, we know your, your own parents sometimes think, oh, what are you, are you still playing the piano? Oh my gosh. Like, you know, <laughs> I mean, they make all kinds of derogatory. You've got to have a leather exterior, more like a rock exterior to 
keep all that negativity out and forge ahead. And yeah. that's what I see in artists today. They, they want to forge. They don't care how many negative things. There's one spirit, nothing is crushed. The artist wants to be an artist. Okay, I quit 17 years ago. That's not a good example. But everybody else that I know would never quit. I don't know of anybody that would have done what I did, which also brings up a crazy question, you know, like, why on earth did you do it? Well, you know, like I said, I'm not a referendum on everyone else's career. I mean, if you want to play, play. Just like Elvis said, if it's too dangerous to say, sing. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I like that. You know, if you can't talk about it, sing about it. So, you know, this negative stuff, no one has the right to tell anybody they shouldn't go into uh, being a concert artist. It's up to that concert artist to do to decide, like you did, or I did, or whatever. So, so we've we've had a couple of negative points here. Let's try and bring it up a notch in terms of uh, positive te territory. What are the what are you seeing as a positive change in the in the classical music industry now? What what things can new artists or potential artists expect that well, to keep them after, excited? After Corona, I believe that the development artist was being considered more often than the big names. In other words. People were running out of money. You know, the Pueblo Symphony is going broke or whatever. I'm just making all this up. And they, they want to bring in unknowns and promote the unknowns instead of paying huge bucks to Itzhak Perlman or Shlomo Mintz or Joshua Bell or wherever your flavor of the month, Leela Josefowitz, and build the unknown into a local hero. I think it can be done. To be honest with you, I think... That's a very good thing since Corona, if it's true. But I've noticed they're booking a lot of big names still. I mean, Yuja Wang and Daniil Trifonov and Lang Lang, they get most of the piano dates. I mean, you know, Yafim Bronfman, maybe. Um, you've got a handful of people playing lots of gigs. Okay, so that leaves less for the development artists. But they are considering... considering short, long list, development artists more often now than they were before the coronavirus thing hit. I've noticed that. They're more mm. open to it because of money. Yeah, that, that's always a, a consideration for these folks. And I've seen a lot of, I mean, we, luckily I'm in Norway, so the government sponsors quite a lot of activities. I mean, uh, we're singing the Brahms Deutsche Requiem in yeah. uh, December, which is Great which piece. is a wonderful wonderful piece, and we've got players from the Oslo Philharmonic. We've got uh, international soloists and some of the best soloists uh, in in Norway singing for us. But that's mm -hmm. because the state is helping us support supporting well, yeah, local it's... artists and by bringing in the best. Yeah, I mean, here in the states, the National Endowment of the Arts is completely defunct. No more grants for orchestras and stuff. Whereas in Mexico, every Everything's paid for. They don't care how yeah. many people come to the concert. China too, right? I mean, yeah. you know, you can have 200 people in a, the most glorious hall in China. No one cares because, like you say, it's, it's in the fiber of the politics. They promote cultural advancement, you know, whereas in the States, I mean, a banker might buy 40 tickets to the 
you know, Paducah Symphony and not even fill one of them. He'll just buy them to get them off their back. I mean, yeah. again, a negative thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm dwelling too much. No, here are, po- here are the positive things about this industry right now. More than ever, anyone can do anything. The trouble, the offshoot, you know, the flip side is there are too many people that are doing whatever they want to do, meaning yeah. on the Internet. Like you say, you can flip a switch and you have desktop publishing. You can produce your own CD. and But everybody's doing it. So I still say the number one thing is uniqueness, even before money. It has to be truly unique for it to be a big career. Now, if you just want you know to play a little bit, and many people do, they're not looking for big careers, then that's good. They're in good shape because they can have a very nice career without too much worry about branding, you know. But if you want to be, if you're one of those 24 million in China that want to be Lang Lang, it's tough. Lang Lang had a lot going for him, you know. Yeah. Gary, Gary Grafman, for one. You know his teacher. So yeah, I mean, I suppose having somebody like uh, uh, Nadia Boulanger as your as your um, yeah. uh, piano coach could, could get you in a, in a couple of doors, uh, and that I suppose their is connections, still... their connections, connections. Exa- exactly, not, not their prowess. Just because Boulanger was great at what she no, she knew people. But I but I've also seen on. Uh, uh, Probably fifty percent of the pianists that I followed, they've got her listed as they oh, had yeah. one lesson. One lesson with her, so that's. <laughs> I know. So she's she's a fantastic uh, brand uh, to, to have as well. So it's also that I think the progression as an artist, you have to tick certain boxes and say you you know had Boulanger, you were you had X Y Z. It's like the Lenny. It's like the Lenny thing. If Leonard Bernstein looked sideways at someone, that person would say they studied with him. It's true. Oh, exactly. I had a conductor said, hey, do you know what this is? I said, no, that's Lenny's watch. And you know what I said? I said, I truly hope it helps you in the concerto we're about to play. <laughs> I mean, you know, come on. Yeah. What a thing to tell the soloists right before they're walking out. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of positive stuff going on in this industry. And, you know, you just have to fight for it. That's the other thing. Is there any fight left in you to do it? You have to want it. The desire has to be there. You said passion. That's it. If there's no desire, nothing's going to help. It's like Ray Kroc said, you know, the guy that franchised McDonald's, right? The only thing that matters is perseverance. There are lots of talented people. There are a lot of wealthy people. There are a lot of this kind of people, good looking, bad looking, whatever. But if you keep doing it, keep persevering, stick to itiveness, you're going to you're going to succeed eventually. Uh, I, that perseverance is a theme that comes up and up the whole time when I'm speaking to really successful folks. Yeah. That's why I joked joked in the beginning about being a ten, you know overnight success in ten years. Google was an overnight success in ten years. Tesla was an overnight success in ten years. It took they weren't an overnight success. It took no, of a decade not. of work and perseverance to get there, and you know sticking through well, it, even that's when beca- that's because it didn't pers- look like it was going to succeed. Yeah. The reason they think it's an overnight success, it's when they hear of the name for the first time. They go, oh, wow, who's this? 
Well, they've been working hard, you know. Yeah. It's just like the guy that played Elvis last year, you know, what's his name? Austin Butler. Nobody knew this guy was a sensational performance uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And he came out of nowhere. Well, that's not true. He's made movies before and he was being cultivated and uh, the director cast him and that's it. The rest is history. You know, I mean, it's hard. So I think for your potential uh, customers who we should you know, hopefully send a couple couple to you who've got some talent, you've got to expect that this is not going to be an overnight That's what I say all uh, the success. time. You're, you're going to have to take a couple of years of building your profile, doing the smaller gigs, building up your social media channels, making sure you get people listening to you on Spotify and, and yeah. YouTube. And then Hits. perhaps you'll get Great. that. Perhaps you'll get that lucky break, and it just comes from left field some, sometimes. And sometimes it might never happen. Well, the problem is most artists, unfortunately, naively want a quick fix. There is no quick fix in this industry, um, unless back to the money thing. And and by the yeah. way, even if you spend five to ten million, you could fail. That's not a guarantee. That means you have a chance at a career, a big career. Okay, but the poor man's way is probably more solid. Just one call at a time and just keep going, keep doing it. It's the consistency that matters. Okay, I've got one. I've got I've got one last thing I want to chat to you about. And this was about your trip to the Soviet Union and your the difference in how the audience reacted in the States to your performance and the performance that you had in Russia? Well, in my opinion, a great artist is going to almost elicit the same reaction anywhere in the world. But the Russians are very passionate, but they're much more, in a way, they're a little bit more reserved physically getting involved in the concert. In the States, they'll scream and yell and throw underwear on the stage. You know, I'm just kidding. But, you know, I mean, they really go nuts here. But I think this the audiences in Russia have always have been, they're very cultivated and they love the art. You know, they love concert music. The States, you know, it's, it's still a backwater culturally. You know, I mean, you've got a lot of... Um, people that just don't like classical music or serious music, but some places that's the only music they like. Right. You know, I mean, it all started in Germany and I mean, that's the Germans, you know, come on, you know, Beethoven, Brahms, Schumann, everybody wonders why the greatest music came out of Germany. I don't know. You can't beat those composers. Bach. Definitely, definitely the water. Mozart. So my next podcast is going to be on classical music. So I think we definitely going to have to have you on again to just chat about that, chat about new artists, chat about oh uh, yeah, some of these uh, wonderful, wonderful recordings. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a name, Natasha Korsakova. You should listen to her. She's a great violinist. I just thought of uh, her, and since you're a, a an aficionado and a buff, uh, I think you would really enjoy her playing. It's one, some of the greatest music making ever. Well, I'm going to get that link from you. Yasha Heifetz is my number one uh, well, violinist. Well, listen to even her. When he's a, even when he's an old chap playing at Carnegie Hall with a broken elbow, yeah. I, just the sound of that man is just... Oh, yeah. 
I know. Wonderful. Yeah. Actually, Bill Judd was his manager. My manager was his road manager. Wow. Okay. So I met Mrs. Heifetz once. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, def Palm we'll definitely have it in Palm Beach. Palm, Palm Springs. Springs. Palm Springs. Yes, Palm ah, Springs. Okay, she okay. lived in Palm Springs. Ah, okay. Interesting well, we're lady. Defi definitely going to have a, a chat about that at a later stage. Jack, it's been a real privilege oh, listen, speaking to you. Nicholas and we could, have been, we could have gone on for hours and hours. For hours. I, but uh, I don't think the listeners would, would manage. But I really you appreciate so your knowledge in this, <laughs> in this area. It's great. Terrific. Well, great chatting to you. And I'm sure we'll have you back on again. And I'd love to talk about some some more artist manage, management or music management and see what what we can do to help some of these artists of yours really build their brands and, and get out there without having to spend five to ten million dollars. Yeah, we can get into much more detail. This was sort of like an overview. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Great. Sure. Okay. Thanks, Jack. Okay, thank you, Nicholas. Mmm, come chat with Nicholas. He'll listen to you. Then he'll laugh and then he'll cry with you. It's all in a safe space for you to speak your truth.